Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So, what is your response when you hear me say that God's intention is for us to become a heaven kind of person? What is your interior response when you hear those words? Do you imagine that meaning being less human, less real, less involved with the true and good life? Do you imagine it being less engaged with the needs on the border or less engaged with innocent people being mowed down this weekend, less engaged with the horror of a drunk driver taking the life of someone that we love. When you hear these uh, words from Colossians, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. What do we do with that kind of language and imagery? Sometimes we've been taught that that means that as Christians, we're not engaged with all the things that are actually physical and here. We're not engaged with the real concerns because somehow we are just supposed to transcend above that and think about heavenly things. Last week, we talked about words and how we need to scratch at them and ask what it is we mean by them. What is it that we actually mean when we say certain things? Last week, I briefly mentioned the word discipleship. This week, I want to think about heaven and an accompanying word often for us, spiritual. Whenever Colossians, now we're in chapter 3, and it talks about things above and things on earth, the word for above is, is a word in place of heaven. It means heaven or earth. And if, as we're reading Colossians, this is exactly the language that was used earlier, heaven things above, things heavenly, and things on the earth. But now we get to chapter 3, and he's using another metaphor, things above. But when you're reading it, what you hear is heaven. But as you continue to read Colossians chapter 3, as we did this morning, the immediate implications are all about things here. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature or your fleshly nature or the nature that is absorbed with temporal things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, which that could be a whole sermon. We used to walk in these ways in the life that we lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self. These are all things 
that are worked out here and now. And then the conclusion of the section that we read, this powerful, penetrating, earth-shattering reality of how the social order gets completely redone in Christ when he says, here in Christ there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. We could never, ever read this and hear Paul saying that because we are to think on heavenly things, it has very little to do with the way we live here and now with our neighbor. I wonder today, when we get to this concluding line about Jew and Greek and circumcised and uncircumcised, very few of these are the dividing lines for us in this room. I wonder what they would be. It could be wealthy and poor. It could be documented, undocumented. There's all kinds of ways that we divide ourselves. And in Christ, Paul says, this is undone and remade. But set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. So, Does this mean we're just supposed to think about heaven and angels and singing in the choir, not about sex and politics and jobs, not about families separated at the border, not about laws and a culture of violence and hatred that leads us to mourn so many dead lives this morning? In other words, heard one way, we could say what Paul is telling us is don't think about any of the stuff that we can actually touch and taste or grieve or enjoy Concern yourselves only with the things that are ethereal, things that are off in the future, things that are good for nothing in this world. This language of above and earth, of heaven and earth, it is not about geography. It is not about location. It is not about timing, future versus now. It's about origin. Where is the power? The imagery of above in the first century mind, they had no concept of outer space, okay? Their mind didn't go to something a million miles away. It was something that transcended, something that was over. It was above, but it was right here. When we pray and say Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over creation, it doesn't mean God in some distant galaxy. It means God ruling right here over creation, but here. From the very beginning of the story, God has been filling the world with his own divine life. In other words, in scripture, what makes the world alive is that it is filled with the life of God. That's what it means to be alive. What makes you and I truly alive is that our breath is filled with God's life-giving breath. To have God, to have God's life is what it means to be created. This is what it means to be truly alive, what it means to truly exist. God and death are not equal competing forces. There is God, and then there is merely a subtraction. 
Evil can create nothing. Evil can only kill. Death is merely nothingness. Death is simply what you get without God's life. All death is, all evil is, in the end, it's decay. It's what happens whenever life begins to seep away. This uh, past week, I was in Texas with my dad who had what was supposed to be a normal uh, surgery for a knee replacement and turned into massive complications. Um, and I left yesterday. He was still in the hospital, so I appreciate your prayers. But my dad lives at home alone, and he doesn't cook, which means he doesn't eat very well. Sorry, Dad, if you ever listen to this. <clears throat> but um, I was in the refrigerator, and he, there was not that much. It was half empty. But almost everything that was in there was old and nasty. So in the bottom tray, there was vegetables, but they had been there so long that they were now mush and liquid. And um, almost everything in, in the refrigerator was spoiled. There were two cartons of eggs from 2017. Um, and my dad's, I mean, active. It's not like he, you know, but he just doesn't pay attention to his refrigerator. Well, if you leave it there long enough and you just leave it to itself, all that you have at the end is death and decay and rot. That's essentially what you have when the life of God is pulled away. Colossians began with one of my favorite texts from Paul. It's in chapter 1, verse 17. For in Christ, all things were created. Do you hear that? <laughs> in Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things are held together. So what God in Christ is doing, what God in Christ did on the cross and in the resurrection and is now doing in the power of the Spirit, is bringing life into death. That's another way of saying bringing heaven into earth. What God is doing is getting life into the realm of death. God is getting heaven into earth so that earth becomes heaven. Isn't that exactly what we pray every Sunday in the Lord's Prayer? Make your kingdom come on earth as it already is in heaven. This is what we are waiting for and praying for and looking toward and hoping for for that day when finally, as Revelation tells us, heaven and earth are joined together in the new heaven and earth. And all of a sudden, we don't need to pray that prayer anymore because it's true. And we don't mourn death anymore because there isn't any death. And we don't have to sit here and ask what in God's name are we doing at the border because God has healed it and God has put our mind to rights. And no longer do we have to fear 
one another. Because Jesus Christ has destroyed fear and healed the deepest places of our hearts so that no longer are we at odds with one another. But God has made us whole. Everything that Paul is talking about, everything that Scripture is talking about, when he says don't, don't set your mind on earthly things, he's talking about where is the origin of our hope? And I can tell you, it does not come from below. It comes from above. It is not something that we can create. It is something that God must create. It is not something that we can finally enact. We participate and we pray for God's mercy as God makes the world new. Of course, the problem is that as Christians, we still often live by the old regime. We live by the ways of death. We live by the ways of the earth. Again, I hope I can, at some point, I hope we can stop having to clarify ourselves. It doesn't mean things that are physical in here. It means the way of death. I want to say a short word just because I, it's, I wrestle with it a lot, and I think some of us probably do. When Paul said, lists all these things of the ways, of the earthly ways, the ways of death, the old ways. And he says, it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Some of us, not all of us, but some of us hear that language, and that's another place where we just recoil. We have no concept, no way to, to sort of reckon with what it might mean for the wrath of God to come. I don't have a final answer, but we can't ignore this because this shows up too often in scripture. <laughs> Wrath from God is not vindictive. It is not retri retributive. It is God's response to death. Aristotle liked to say that anger, using the same word here, or gay, he called it desire with grief. I think there's something there. God's desire for wholeness and life mixed with profound grief that it is not so and what we're doing. What I would add to it is God's desire mixed with God's grief mixed with God's intention to do something about it. It's cleansing. It purifies and transforms. It's not like our wrath. This is the problem. We hear this word and we think about the wrath we have encountered from others or the wrath in ourselves that we have offered. And we think, God can't be like that. And you're absolutely right. God can't be like that. Because God is revealed on the cross of Christ. Where Jesus, rather than punishing, took death into himself. But that doesn't mean that God is so weak and impotent that God doesn't say, absolutely not. You will not. Sometimes it seems to me that the issue, too, is a little bit more about what actually we think is deserving of wrath or isn't. Most of us don't have problems with God's wrath aimed at Hitler or the KKK. 
but we have God's problems with God's wrath aimed at the things that perhaps we might still hold on to. I have a friend, um, he's a spiritual director, and uh, he actually is MISCA spiritual director, and once he told her, and I think he's told me the same during a, a really difficult place, um, he said, I looked at this guy or, or the phone and said, I'm angry for you. I think that gets to the heart of God's anger. I think it's connected with, with the anger Jesus often experienced. He was angry for. God's wrath is God's desire for the healing of the world mixed with the grief that death continues combined with God's insistent action to heal. What we're talking about is God's fierce intention to end all death, to flood the world with life, to make a people of heaven, to make an earth that reflects the goodness and the life of God. May that be so. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.